0: Good morning. How y'all doing? Good, Good. me too. Talking about anger, got my angry shirt on. (laughs) At a previous church, we had the preschool classrooms painted in the colors of the rainbow. And you may not know this, but there have been studies that show certain colors evoke certain emotions. This was information I did not possess at that time. And so the infant room, the room most likely to have very sad and angry children, was painted bright red. It has nothing to do with anything. Just sharing that with you. Just so that you know that I am also foolish, just like you. So, my name is Carl. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. Glad you guys are here. I'm eager. To get into the Word of God with you. Uh, but I want to share a quick story that I think will help us think about this. I was hanging out with a friend of mine just a few weeks ago, just me and him hanging out in his living room. It was after his kid's bedtime. His wife had gone and was hanging out with her friends. And so it was just me and him in the living room. The kids had already been put to bed. We're just hanging out. And he's got this fancy device that many of you with young kids have seen and know about. And it's just a baby monitor that has a camera in the room and it lets you see what the kids are up to. It's got infrared on it so you can see them in the dark. It's got a button you can push, you can talk to the kids to hey, get back in bed, you know, or whatever. And he's just glancing at it, making sure his kids are okay, and I was like, man, what's that? He goes, oh, it's my baby monitor. I was like, what? The one I had when, I was, when my kids were little was a great big giant CRT thing. He had to go, turn it on, and it warmed up for 20 minutes. Anyway, I was like, let me see that. He hands it to me, and I look at it, and I was like, that's cool. So he's got a bunk bed in the kids room. He's got two kids. Youngest kid is on the bottom bunk, little boy. And he's not really in bed. He kind of is. He's like halfway in bed. He's like from the legs to the waist is in the bed. The way the hips are placed up against the rail. And he's leaning out of the bed. And he's playing with a thing on the desk. And I was like, "Huh?" My first thought was, man, does that kid do CrossFit? How's he doing that? Back muscles, that's amazing. Also, should he be doing this? And he's like, no, golly, this kid, man. We've been struggling. He's like obeying the rules, right? He's in bed, but not really. I was like, yeah, should you do something about that? He's like, why don't you do it? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, push the button, tell him to get back in bed. And I was like, I'm not his father. He goes, he doesn't know that. I'm like, that's true. I got a pretty good dad voice. Hey, buddy, get back in your bed right now. And he stops. He looks right at the camera. And he goes back to doing. That's not my dad. I know that voice. That's not my dad. I was like, that did not work. So I toss it back to him. And he goes, he calls him by name. Hey, buddy, get back in your bed right now. And he hands it back to me. And I look. I don't see the kid. <laughs> He's completely behind the rail. He's gone. He's disappeared. It's like, that's amazing. A kid knows his father's voice. I get his listening. That's great. But I also thought about it. and I was like, man, that kid doesn't really understand that rule correctly. He doesn't really get it. He just knows that the rule is stay in bed. That's all he knows. That's all he cares about. I'm trying to obey that rule as best I can without crossing the line, right? I'm half in bed, I'm half out of bed, kind of doing what I want, but I'm still obeying. You said stay in bed. Technically, I'm in bed. And this kid's like two and a half, right? Which, what's up with the half anyway? What's up with that, right? We're kids, we're like, can't wait for the next birthday, the next number. I'm, I'm four and a half. I'm seven and a half. But at some point that stops, doesn't it, right? Why? Why do we stop looking forward to the new birthdays? Why do we look, why? I'm 49 and a half <laughs> effective today? Has nothing to do with anything. So the kid isn't really understanding this law. He isn't understanding this rule. There's something better about that rule that the father has intended. It's not just stay in bed so you don't bother me, it's stay in bed because you need it, because it's good for you because you need the rest. You need to sleep so that you're ready for the next day. You need to have a heart that understands that this is a good rule that I've given you. But he doesn't understand that. He just understands it's a rule. I just want to stay out of trouble. In a similar way, that's what Jesus is dealing with. As he's preaching and he's talking to the people, he's about to try to explain to them how you have not quite understood God's laws correctly. You don't quite understand what he's up to. You have not quite embraced the heart behind these laws. You're just trying to do the letter of the law. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Father, you are good. You are only good. You are a good God who gives good gifts to his children, and you've given us your law. You've given us the expectations that you have for your people. And not only have you given us those expectations, you've given us a way by which they can be met in Christ. You have given to us this beautiful gift of the fulfillment of these laws through your son. And so as we think about that together, as we study that today, we pray that we would see you correctly we would see your mercy, that we would see your grace, that we would see your love and your patience with us, who do not deserve your patience, who do not deserve your grace, who do not deserve your love, and yet you give it, and yet you give it. What a beautiful gift we have in Jesus. So we pray that you'll help us today as we think about these things together, that our hearts will be encouraged, that we would be reminded of your love, and that we would come away understanding you better and loving you more, which would cause us to worship you more rightly. Be with us. We need you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. So, we've been walking through the book of Matthew, and now we're in chapter 5, kind of in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount. Last week, Jared preached an excellent sermon on verses 17 to 20, where Jesus talks about how he has not come to abolish the law of God. He says that the commands of God are not going anywhere. I'm not here to change that. I'm not here to undo that. He says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But what must that have sounded like to a first century Jew? What must that have sounded like to those who are listening? What are you talking about, Jesus? You come to fulfill the law for me? I think I'm good, bro. I think I'm kinda crushing it over here, right? I know the laws, don't murder. Haven't murdered anybody. Don't commit adultery, nailing it. Totally faithful to my wife. Don't worship idols, yeah, of course. I only worship you. Why would we need you to fulfill this law for us? What are you talking about? I kinda feel like I'm fulfilling the law just fine. Jesus finishes that section of the sermon that we looked at last week by saying, unless you have the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jared mentioned this last week, right? This would have been, at worst, shocking and at least confusing, right? Wait, 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 Jesus, wait. You're saying if I want to get into the kingdom of God, I have to be more righteous than these guys who tithe on everything they get? Who follow God's laws more strictly than all the rest of us? I'm supposed to be more righteous than them? That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem reasonable. That seems, that seems impossible. What kind of righteousness is more than theirs? I can't even imagine what more righteousness looks like, Jesus. And that's what Jesus is explaining. That's what he's about to talk about today and over the next several weeks. We're going to be looking at Jesus's explanation of what that kingdom righteousness Looks like? What does it really look like to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna show you. And he gives us six examples. Each example is gonna follow the same formula, including today's. And the formula is you've heard it said this. You've heard this, but I'm gonna tell you this, right? But we need to remember what's happening. Right? Jesus is explaining what that kingdom righteousness looks like. He's making clear what the requirements actually are for being a part of the kingdom of God, and that can be a tough pill to swallow, especially for those who may have misunderstood it up until that point. Both the people that were listening to him then as well as us were thinking about him again today. So, let's jump into the text and see what's going on. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he's referencing commandment number seven, right? In the 10 commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20. And he starts off by saying, you have heard. Why is he saying that? Why you have heard, not you have read or something like that. For a couple of reasons. The first one should be obvious to us that they didn't have a Bible in their laps. What the people of God heard about God and his law was from speaking. They heard God's laws taught to them. They heard them from their teachers. And there's a second reason that we'll talk about in just a second. But he says, you have heard, and then he says, to those of old. What's he talking about? To those of old. He's just, he's just making the point that this is a historic thing. I'm not bringing up something new. This is not a contemporary thing that I'm giving you. This is something that's been around for a while. God gave the law. And then it was passed down to his people, and his people passed it down, and passed it down, and passed it down, and passed it down, and passed it down. And And what you've heard is that law having been passed down. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So he says the actual command, right? You shall not murder. But he doesn't just say the command. He also says, and here's what the typical consequence would be, right? He said those who murder will be liable to judgment, Specifically in this case, the judgment would have been to be put to death. That's the expectation for a murderer. Someone who murders is gonna be held to judgment and the judgment will be that they'll be put to death. But that's not the point that Jesus is making. The point is that there will be judgment for murder and not just earthly judgment, but eternal judgment from God. And his audience knows this and they understand this. This is not new, this is not surprising. They've heard it taught that way their entire lives. They're not surprised at all to hear this. This would be like me standing up here and saying, "Huh, you might have heard that if you drive through an intersection with one of those cameras and you're going too fast or there's a red light, you're gonna get a citation in the mail from the city. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, we have heard that. Because that's how it is. That's the way it works. In fact, I got one of those in the mail just the other day. And my wife checked the mail and she's like, what's this about? And I was like, I have no idea. So he's telling them nothing new, but he does not stop. The next verse, 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So this brings us to the second reason why he said, you have heard, you have heard that it was said, is because Jesus is not taking issue with the law. Jesus is not saying, hey, this law isn't quite good enough. He's not saying, hey, this law isn't quite clear enough. He's taking issue with the way that it's been taught. He's taking issue with what they have heard. Remember, he just got finished saying last week, I have not come to abolish the law. I'm not here to undo the law. He's not replacing it with something different or something better. He's not taking issue with the command of God because the command of God is perfect. It doesn't need to be undone. It doesn't need to be changed. He's taking issue with what the people have heard. You have heard that it was said. This means what they've been taught. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he's not putting himself above the law. He's putting himself above the teachers of the law. He's saying, you've heard it taught this way, but I'm going to give you a better explanation. I'm going to give you a better exegesis of God's word. I'm going to remind you of what has always been meant by this law, but that you don't seem to quite understand. So Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, angry with his brother. Who does Jesus mean by his brother? Well, he isn't saying biological brothers. Or somehow that would give you permission to be angry with your sister or your parents or your cousins, just not your brothers. Well, that's not it. That's not what he's talking about. What does he mean? He's talking about the kind of relationships that exist within this family. He's talking about the kind of relationships when Jesus has been teaching and giving the example of talking about God as father. Those who call God father are brothers and sisters to one another. And so he's saying, those within this family. And that's probably what he means. Those who call God Father are brothers and sisters, and that's what he's talking about. But that should not cause us to think, "Aha, uh-huh, okay, cool, so he's only talking about believers. I'm not supposed to get mad at the other people at church, or the other people that love Jesus, but I'm totally good to get mad at the AT&T guy who's not getting my stuff hooked up right, or I'm totally okay with getting mad at the guy at the grocery store who's putting the bread underneath the gallon of milk. Bro, what are you doing? Right? it's not okay. So he's not excluding non-believers. What he's doing is he's honing in on these relationships that ought to be more tight, more unified, because you share a love for God. The point is that within those relationships, unity should be strongest. There should be no division or enmity between those of the same family. There should be the greatest love, the greatest affection, but there isn't. Jesus is making an example of the relationships that should be the most anger-free because of their unity and love. And he's saying that you fail to obey this command if you're angry with your brother. And this is not to the exclusion of non-believers, but an emphasis on that kind of relationship because he's gonna go on to talk about relationships beyond that as well. But he doesn't even stop there. He says, not only that, he says the same is true if you speak rudely to your brother, or if you call him dumb you call him fool. Why is that? Why is there this momentary focus on the speech of a person? Because if you're insulting, if you call your brother names, that betrays what's in the heart. It shows what is in your heart. The way that you speak will often demonstrate what is in your heart. Luke chapter 6, Jesus is talking about knowing a tree by its fruit. And he addresses this issue a little more clearly. Luke 6, verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus is saying, what's in your heart is coming out in your speech. Yes, the law is don't murder but there's something that begins that process that results in murder and it's something in your heart and that's what he's concerned with. So Jesus is not making the case that it's okay to be angry with this group or that group. What he's saying is your heart betrays you through your speech and your action but I'm concerned not as much with your action and not as much with your speech as so much with what's happening in your heart. These other things are symptoms of the problem. I'm concerned with your disease. I'm concerned with your illness. Next thing that I want you to see is that each one of these statements, Jesus is kind of changing the consequence that he talks about. First, he begins with, if you get angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. And that's the exact same phrase that he talks about when he talks about the original command, right? He says, if you murder, you're liable to judgment. And now he's saying, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. He's trying to make a direct correlation, a direct connection between these things. Being angry in your heart with your brother is the same as murdering him. That's what he's saying, He's making this direct connection. But then he changes the wording of the consequences as he moves on. Whoever insults his brother will now be liable to the council. The council will be like the Sanhedrin, the group of Jewish leaders that are gathered to mete out justice among God's people. And then he says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Hell of fire. What is that about? That seems very strong. Suddenly I call a guy one name and I'm going to hell? So the hell of fire is this word, Gehenna, which refers to this literal physical place right outside of Jerusalem, where in the Old Testament, on a couple of occasions, we find the descriptions of what people were doing in this place, people that were worshiping Molech, that were worshiping a false god, and they would literally sacrifice their children to this false god by sacrificing them with fire, and they would burn them in these places, and those places became known as this wicked, evil, dark place. You didn't want to go, it's yucky, it's bad. And then tradition holds that people began to take their trash there to burn it and take their refuse there to burn it. So it was this evil, wicked, dark place, refuse everywhere, fire everywhere, it smells bad, it looks bad. Think of like the streets of San Francisco. (laughs) Hey, listen, truth is truth. You guys got to pick up that poop. (laughs) so he's saying the hell of fire why why does he get so strong there it seems like what he's doing is he's ramping up the consequences you'll be liable to judgment you'll be liable to the council you're going to hell while the infraction to us seems to be decreasing you murdered somebody you're angry with somebody you called him a name but jesus is not trying to make this scale Jesus is driving toward making clear that the judgment we should be concerned with is God's judgment. I should not be concerned with whether or not I can get away with it with you. Can I be angry in my heart and fool you and make you think that I'm good? Of course. Can I fool God? I cannot. God's judgment is what we should be concerned with. So we might be tempted to think that there are some sort of increasing consequences and that's that's some sort of lesson we're supposed to learn. That's not the point that he's making. The point is about righteousness. That's what he's teaching on. This righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. As he continues to talk about these offenses that seem to his audience to be less serious than murder, he's pushing further and further toward the judgment of God and saying these things are no different. The state of your heart that produces murder, you are guilty of whether you actually murder someone or not. These aren't meant to be seen as increasing in severity, but to point out that breaking this command is more than just an action. It isn't just, did you kill somebody? Did you murder them? And it is judged by more than men. God sees what's in the heart, and he will judge us for what he finds there. These outward actions are just symptoms of that wicked heart, and that is what God is concerned with. He doesn't want this cheap righteousness of just keeping yourself from murdering people. Just don't kill them. Just don't kill them. Just don't kill them. He doesn't want that. He wants a heart that's free from the sin of anger. The righteousness of the kingdom certainly includes not actually murdering people. But the righteousness of the kingdom is far greater than that. The righteousness that God is requiring of his people to enter the kingdom requires that you have a heart that is free from anger, but you don't have it. The righteousness required by God to enter the kingdom requires that you do not have this frustrated, angry heart that overflows into hurtful or hateful speech towards your brother. So what would that have been like for his listeners? How would they hear that? They hear that first verse, You've heard it said, okay, yeah, I get it. But to hear that second verse, but, you, but I say to you, what? Wait, what? That escalated real quick, Jesus. <laughs> what are you doing? You started saying something made sense to me, right? Someone who's committing murder is going to face judgment. They're going to be put on trial, likely for their lives, but I totally get it. That makes sense. But now you're trying to tell me that the same thing is true for someone who just gets angry? That seems ridiculous. That seems a little weird, Jesus kind of courtroom is going to prosecute somebody for getting angry? And even if they did, how would they prove the case? I mean, if you're serious about this, Jesus, that, this, that murder and anger are somehow deserving of the same consequences, well, I hate to tell you this, but that would be impossible. I mean, we're people, right? We get angry with each other. It happens. Sometimes we get frustrated and we call each other names. Sometimes we're rude. We can't just not be angry not the way things are, Jesus. It's impossible, what you're saying. If that's really true, then that's kind of discouraging and frustrating. Before you started talking, Jesus, I was feeling pretty good. I was feeling pretty good about how well I've obeyed this law. I haven't murdered anyone. But now you're telling me that if I'm angry with my brother, that I've also broken this law? So in this moment, you're telling me that I went from 100% righteousness to 0% righteousness? I've not been obeying this law just because sometimes I've gotten angry with my brothers? And you didn't even stop there. Golly, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Come on, bro. You're saying that just to insult my brother, I get frustrated one time that I fall into the same category of murderer? Every time I've been angry, every time I've called somebody a name, every time I've insulted them, I've broken your command? Is that what you're saying? And Jesus says, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You thought you were obeying this command, you thought you'd attained the required amount of righteousness that was needed to measure up. You were wrong. You thought that the mere action of avoiding physical murder was good enough, and it's not. You thought that biting your tongue, keeping it to yourself, just being angry in your heart but don't let anybody else see, that was acceptable. It's not. The standard is so much higher. The expectation is so much loftier than that. The requirement is so far out of reach you don't see it yet. You don't understand that correctly. Now, let's not miss what's happening because it's worth repeating. Jesus is not giving some new command, he's not adding to the law, he's not changing the law, he's not abolishing the law. He's not really even focused on anger. That sermon is not about anger. Today's is because I'm focused on this little teeny tiny part of his sermon, but that's not his main point. Jesus is talking about something to make a bigger point. He's talking about anger today and adultery next week and these other things that we'll be talking about in the coming weeks because he wants to make a bigger point. Jesus is explaining the law more clearly because the people have missed the mark as they've passed it down and taught it to each other. What they have taught is that behavioral component of the law do not murder. And I like, got it. Don't murder. Check. Easy peasy, what else you got? But they've forgotten that the issue of the heart that produces that murderous intent and that murderous action is what God is concerned with. And that's not new. That's not a new idea that Jesus is bringing here. God's expectations have never been just about actions. He has always been concerned with the heart of his people. It's all over the place. I'll give you a few examples, but I could give you a dozen more. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 11, verse 16. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. He's concerned with the heart. Don't let your heart produce a desire to worship elsewhere. Worshiping elsewhere is bad and wrong, but I'm saying to you, don't let your heart be deceived that then produces that sinful behavior. And then 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is the story where Samuel is going to the home of Jesse, and he's... Going to be anointing the new king. And he comes and he brings all Jesse's sons out. He looks at the oldest son. He's like, That's got to be the guy. Looks real nice. Real nice, Clark. (laughs) But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks. On the heart. God has always been concerned about the heart of his people. Jesus is not teaching them something new. He's reminding them of something they've always been taught, but they have forgotten. So God wasn't being sneaky when he gave this command, right? He wasn't giving this command and thinking, oh man, where's my angels? Gabriel, God, come here, look at this. Look what I did. Look what I did. I made the command do not murder. but they'll never figure out what I really meant, right? Not until I send my son later, and then he'll tell them, and it'll be cool. But man, watch. Watch them freak out and just try to obey the law. This is going to be amazing. That's not what he did, right? God has been telling his people that he wants their hearts all along. It was their sin that caused them to reduce God's commands down to this action alone, to reduce it down to this thing they thought that they could actually do. Jesus is revealing what's always been there in order to remove this self-righteousness and to expose the utter lostness of man that they might see their desperate need for a savior. He wants his audience to hear this and to think, this is impossible. If he really expects this of us to enter the kingdom, then none of us are going to make it. I'm not making it. My dad's not making it. Scribes and the Pharisees, they're not even making it. Exactly. Exactly. That's what the law was always meant to do. Jesus is pointing out here on the Sermon on the Mount, and Paul's going to expand on this idea later more in his epistles, the law is meant to be this crushing weight that you cannot bear. We aren't meant to read the commands of God and say to ourselves, I think I can do that. It'll take some work. I can get there. I can do it. No. We're meant to read God's law and say, No way. I can never live up to that. I can never achieve that kind of righteousness. I cannot fulfill the demands of this law. And that's what Jesus is telling them. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You cannot fulfill the obligations of the law. And so God sends his son. God comes and he puts on flesh and he does what we could never do. That's what Jesus is telling him. He's saying, I have come to fix your problem. But you don't even know you have a problem. You don't even know you have a problem. You don't see the law correctly yet. It isn't crushing you. You think it's attainable, and so therefore you don't think you need a savior. But Jesus isn't even done. After shocking his audience with this impossibility of this righteousness that's actually required, he keeps going, he keeps pushing. Verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So now Jesus is going to give his listeners a couple of quick case studies, if you will, that address the seriousness of this issue of anger in the heart of man. But notice what he's done. He's switched from talking about people in general, right, saying things like everyone who is angry with his brother or whoever insults his brother. He switched to speaking to you. If you are offering your gift at the altar, he's making his examples more personal so that you and I and those who are listening to him then will better understand it and hopefully better identify what, what he's talking about. So let's think about this, what he's saying. So he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, at the altar, where would that be? Where would the altar be in a first century Jewish culture? In the temple. Good, right in the temple. So once the temple had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel after the Babylonian exile, that was the only place that was now acceptable for sacrifices to be given. And where is the temple located? Jerusalem. Okay, so Jesus is talking to his audience about offering sacrifice at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. But where was he giving the sermon? Where is the Sermon on the Mount given? In Galilee. How far is it from Galilee to Jerusalem? 80 miles. How long does it take to go 80 miles on foot? Well, it depends on how fast you are, I suppose. Me? I don't know. Six months? But normal people, three, four days, maybe a little more. I go like 100 yards, i be like, nah. It's real hot. Did you see the weather app? It's like 108. <laughs> nope. But let's consider what he's saying now. He's saying, he's not saying, if you're, if you're offering your, your gift and what we think of, where would I offer my gift? At the church, at Parkway. And if I need to go and reconcile with my brother, huh, let's hop in the car, drive down the street, hey, man, we should talk. That takes like three minutes. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you're in Jerusalem offering your your gift, and you remember your brother has something against you, leave. Go reconcile with him. But he's in Galilee. I don't care. Okay, i got to go back to Galilee. Maybe I got lucky, and he's in Jerusalem too. But i still got to go find him. Okay? So whose heart is Jesus dealing with here? Whose anger is Jesus talking about? Is it you? Does he say if you're offering your gift and you feel angry with your brother? Nope. If you're offering your gift and your brother has something against you. Jesus is saying that God takes the issue of anger in the heart so seriously that he wants you to go deal with the anger that you may have provoked in your brother. Here you are offering your worship to God and you remember that you and your brother had an argument. You feel good about it? You feel like you've overlooked the offense? You don't feel any... Resentment or frustration, but you know your brother has it. You have the obligation to go and help and minister and reconcile. You are supposed to stop your worship and go help your brother to be free from the enslavement to sin by harboring anger in his heart. Reconcile with him that he might be free to walk in that righteousness of the kingdom that he needs. Then come back and offer your worship. God takes this really seriously. And we don't. We think it's no big deal, which is why he's talking about it. You think it's no big deal. You think the only thing I want is just don't kill each other. Nope. I want you to love one another. I want you to love me, and I want you to love one another. And here's what that looks like. This is the kind of righteousness that's required. And then Jesus gives One more example, but this time it isn't with a brother. It's with somebody else, maybe a stranger, or at least somebody that's got something against you and they want to take you to court over it. Verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So based on the way Jesus is describing this, it seems likely that he's talking about a legal dispute over debt. I owe you money. I'm not paying it back. In Jewish culture at this time, if you owed somebody money and you weren't paying it back, then it was common for you to be put in prison until the debt was paid. And Jesus is saying, if you're in a situation, even with an unbeliever who has something against you, you should seek to reconcile that. Now, this is not a lesson from Jesus on how to deal with legal stuff. Nor is it a lesson from Jesus on how to deal with debt. He's making the same point he's already been making the whole time. Namely, that we are to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees if we want to be part of the kingdom. And that righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. And it is by faith that we should be putting to death the sin of anger in our own hearts, but we should also be concerned with, like God is concerned with, the anger that we might provoke or create in others, whether that be our brothers and sisters in Christ or whether it be strangers. And he ends this little lesson by saying, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He's pushing us to remember what is at stake. What's at stake? If you don't walk in the righteousness that he requires to be a part of his kingdom, if you don't walk in the righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, then you'll be separated. You'll be judged, not by men, but by God. And you'll be separated forever. There is an element of this eschatological, this kind of the end of things theology that he's pointing at. If you don't do these things, if you don't walk in this kind of righteousness, you will not be a part of the kingdom The lesson Jesus has for his audience is that God takes his commandments so much more seriously than we do. If we really understand how high the bar is, then we would and should be crushed by how unattainable it is, which ought to then result in us running to the only one who can and does meet those expectations. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega, the one and true living God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, the Holy One, the Christ. He has done what must be done. And he has endured what must be endured for the sake of those whom the Father has called to himself. It's by this grace and only by this grace that we can be saved. That's the only way that the kind of righteousness that's required can be had. So let's review this. Jesus' goal in this passage, and for the other passages that we're gonna be looking at in the coming few weeks, is to paint a clear picture of what the law actually requires. And what this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees actually looks like. This righteousness that he's saying you've gotta have is out of your reach. It is unattainable. Because the expectation isn't do good. The expectation is be perfect. The expectation is that you have a heart that is free from sin. But we don't have that. And we can't earn it, which is what Jesus is telling them that he came to do. We cannot fulfill the true requirements of this law. In particular here, we cannot obey successfully this command to not murder Because the way that God looks at that command is not merely to avoid the action, but to have a changed heart that does not desire that, does not get angry. And what's crazy is that should be easier for us to have learned than it was for Jesus' audience in Galilee when he was talking that day. We have the added benefit of not only having heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and get to study it, like the audience there had, but we also have the the knowledge of being able to look back and see his death and see his resurrection and listen to 2,000 years of faithful teaching and preaching of God's word. We should understand this well, but we still do the same thing. We still look at the expectations of God and we say, I think I can do that. We do not understand how badly we miss the mark. We say, "Hey, Jesus, where exactly is that line? I'm not supposed to cross. Is it right here? Murder? Don't yeah? Is that what?" And he's like, "No, no, no, no. The line is way back there. And you crossed it a thousand times already." We think I've never murdered anybody. Check. But that's not the standard. The standard is Jesus. We are asking a what question. What must I do, or what must I not do? And the answer is a who. The answer is Jesus. What do I need to do, Jesus? What do I need to be, Jesus? That's what you need. You need to be in Christ. Have you been perfect like he's been imperfect? Because that's what's required. Have you been blameless like he's been blameless? Because that's what's required. Have you had a heart that's free from sin like he has had a heart that's free from sin? Because that's what's required. The answer to all of those for us, of course, no, we haven't. It is only that kind of righteousness that Jesus attains for us that can get us into the kingdom of heaven. And we don't have it, nor can we earn it. But Jesus does have it. He has earned it. He lives this perfect life that we were meant to live and needed to live, but don't. And he's earned the kind of righteousness that he surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees with, like he asks of us. So he has it, and he desires to give it to you. If you have been given the gift of faith in Christ, then you have along with that, the gift of repentance for your sin. And you also have this righteousness that he has earned, this righteousness that he's teaching about, that he has earned through his life and death and resurrection. He imputes that to you if you're in him. For those who love and trust in Christ, that righteousness that he's talking about, that righteousness that seems impossible to attain because it is, that righteousness is yours. If you have not yet received the gift of faith in Christ, if you have not been adopted by God into his family, if you're not a believer, there's no test you've got to pass. There's nothing you've got to do to earn his love or to earn that righteousness that he says that you must have. He literally gives it away for free. What you need to do is see your need for it. All you must do is confess that you are a broken sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ is that savior. He says, come to me, all who are labor." And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me if you're thirsty, and I will give you drink. Come to me if you're hungering for the things of God, and I will satisfy you. That's so beautiful about the gospel of the kingdom that wicked people like you and like me can be declared to be righteous by God because of what Jesus has done. And what he said that he came to do right here in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, he came to fulfill the requirements of the law for us, for his people, because we cannot. We cannot fulfill it. And now we can come to him, and he will fulfill the demands of the law on our behalf. He will impute to us his righteousness, so that when we get to the end of chapter 5, and he says, You must be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect. We will see that while it seems impossible, it isn't. It's only impossible for us on our own. The children of God are counted, declared perfect. Those who hope in Christ are declared by God to be righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that Christ has done. How amazing is our God! Let's pray. Father, we come this morning. Then we say, We need you. How easy and frequently we misunderstand what your Son has done. How easily we are wooed into believing. That we are capable of earning that righteousness. And so we ask for your forgiveness where that is true. When we think about anger and we think about the state of our heart, it's so easy to want to justify our behaviors, to justify our thinking, to justify. Our anger in our heart, or our frustration, or our bitterness, or our slander. But your son tells us so clearly that there's more required. We must be better than that, and yet we cannot be. We cannot be better. And so he is better on our behalf. And so we say, Thank you. You are a good God. You have been infinitely patient and infinitely gracious with us and to us. And not because we're good, we aren't. Not because we deserve it, we don't. Just because you love us, because you are good. So, Lord, I pray that you will strengthen our hearts this morning, increase our faith, help us to believe what is true. We don't have to measure up, we don't. But Jesus measures up for us. So help us to see that rightly, that we might celebrate, that we might rejoice, that we might have real joy over what Christ has done. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that by your spirit, we can understand it. By your spirit, we can declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. We love you. We thank you.